Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You're listening to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. Brighten your day with a book. Hello, my fellow bookworms. This is Philippa from QuickBook Reviews, author interviews and book reviews. How are you doing today? Well, my daughter is already back home from university for reading week. It doesn't seem that they do a lot of reading in reading week, but I think we need to take this on board And we need to start doing reading week. We need to say, right, this is the week where I'm not not going to do any work. I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to sit and read. Listen, if it's okay in the universities of this country, then it should be okay in the homes in the country. So I think we need to start that. Anyway, the other thing I need to point out is I do have a snoring dog lying behind me. I tried to move her and she looked at me and I felt bad and I couldn't move her. So... I apologise for the background noise. Anyway, ignore snoring dogs, lack of reading weeks. I have got some brilliant books I want to talk to you about today. All are winners as far as I'm concerned. So first of all, we've got Dark Horizon by James Swallow. And James is coming on the podcast to talk to us all about that book. Then we've got Don't Look Away by Rachel Abbott. And Rachel's coming on as well. Two brilliant authors. Um, Then we've also got Someday Maybe by Oni Nwabanelli. And can't wait to tell you about that book. We've got The Night House by Joe Nesbo and Goodbye Eri by Tatsuki Fujimoto. A range of books, I think you could agree. But as I say, all winners in different ways. So let me tell you about Dark Horizon by James Swallow. Here's the blurb on this one. A fatal crash on a rain-slick road and a brutal murder in an English village set off a deadly chain of events leading from stormy skies over the Mediterranean Sea to an explosive confrontation on a remote airstrip in North Africa. Only a handful of people know the reason why Kate Hood left the military in disgrace, but to keep her secrets, she must take a last-minute assignment to fly a covert cargo out of the country, with no questions asked. The cargo is a prisoner who may be the key to a violent terrorist conspiracy, but he swears he's an innocent man. And on the ground, a team of ruthless killers are trying to force the pilot to hijack her own aircraft. But do they plan to liberate the captive or execute him? Trapped at the heart of an escalating crisis, Kate and her mysterious passenger must navigate the conflicting agendas of enemies and allies alike on a flight into danger that neither of them may survive. I mean, wow, it reads like a a movie you want to see and, of course, what you want to read. Anyway, let's talk to James now. 
Well, it is my huge pleasure to welcome to the podcast today the one and only James Swallow, whose latest truly fantastic book is called Dark Horizon. James, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Philippa. Thanks for having me on. It's really great to be here. It's great to talk to you. My goodness. I mean, I don't always look at the reviews of books, but I did for yours and the reviews are sky high, which uh, just reflects how good a story it is. But let's start with the real basics. Can you give us a summary of this book? So this is, I always talk about my books as being kind of fast-paced, high-speed, low-drag action thrillers. This is a story about a character pulled out of their comfort zone uh, and placed in an impossible situation. It's about uh, a woman who's an ex-RAF fighter pilot who's now a commercial pilot flying um, private planes for a, a small corporation. And she's forced to take a cargo that she doesn't want to carry out in the middle of the night. And it turns out that the cargo is actually a man who has been accused of being a terrorist sympathizer. And he's being taken out to an illegal black site in another country. And it's an illegal rendition. She doesn't want to be involved in this. The guy claims that he's innocent. And then at the same time, there's a group of bad guys on the ground who are threatening her family. And she is forced to hijack her own plane. And the situation just evolves from there. It's like, who's telling the truth? Who's lying? Who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? All of that stuff is up in the air. And the pressure cooker just kind of like dials up and up and up towards the end of the story. That's pretty much Dark Horizon in a nutshell. Fantastic. When you got the idea for it, did you just have to write it straight away? Was it sort of consuming? Actually, no. It was an idea that I had years ago is that I'd, I'd read an article about these these rendition flights that were taking place and there was a there was a big scandal about these planes stopping at airports in the UK and the question was is like is this legal do the british government know about it they were they colluding with foreign uh, entities in order to do this and it was a very big sort of situation it was all talked about in in parliament and i think there was heads rolled about it but to me as a thriller writer when i read about it i thought this is an interesting idea because immediately my thriller writer head was saying, well, there's a story there. What, what if you were somebody on board that aircraft? What would it be like? What if you didn't want to be piloting that aircraft? And immediately, that to me was the genesis of an idea. So I put that to one side and kind of let that percolate. And then a, a few years later, I was working with uh, my current publisher, Wellbeck, and I'd just done the, another, my previous novel with them, Airside. And they said, well, we want another book from you. We want something in a similar sort of vein. Have you got another idea? And I said, yes, actually, I've got this concept. And I, and I took it out and dusted it off. And I thought, this is, this is matured now, enough now. This, this, is, this is the right time for me to do it. And that became Dark Horizon. Wow. And once you started writing it, was it, I mean, I hate to ask, was it an easy book to write? Because presumably no book's easy. But did it just have its natural flow once you started writing it? Yeah, I think having had, had it sort of sitting in the back of my head, silently percolating away for like a couple of years, when I sat down to to just jot out the outline. I thought, yeah, I've already got the beats of this. I think sub my subconscious was write, writing this without me realizing. So when I got down to writing it, I, I, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. So it was quite, it was quite straightforward when, it, when the writing started. Do all your ideas for books turn into a book or is there some sort of sifting process in your mind that decides whether that's just an interesting concept or a book? Well, I've got Loads of notebooks. I always say to, to writers, whenever I'm sort of like doing a workshop or I'm talking to new writers, I always say, carry loads of notebooks with you. Put one in every bag you have because you'll have an idea and it, jot it down. And it might, not be a, it might not be a novel, but then like maybe a year, two years, four years, five years down the line, you might suddenly go, hey, I can make that work. So for me, 
when ideas pop off, I'm always writing them down. It doesn't necessarily always mean that, that it's going to become a book. Sometimes I've found where I've, I've had an idea which I think, oh, that'll make a great novel. And then I, I spend a while working on it and I realize that actually it won't. And sometimes an idea, you have to explore it a little bit. I think of it as sort of a Rubik's cube. You turn it, twist it, do the colors sort of all match up on the sides. And sometimes they don't. And you have to explore it for a while. You have to spend a bit of energy on it to realize that, oh, actually, this isn't a story. Maybe it would be better suited as, as something else. And then there are the other times when, you know, everything lines up perfectly and you think, ah, this is a great idea. This will work brilliantly. And how do you manage the pace and the plot? Do you have lots of pieces of paper on your wall with strings running from one piece to another? <laughs> like the conspiracy theory walls, you say, yeah. yeah. Um, no, I, I tend to, I'll start off with, with a sort of the, the, the kind of idea soup stage where I'm, I'm just chucking everything into the pot and stirring it around, seeing what sort of floats up to the surface. So I might have ideas for sort of particular scenes or particular characters or, or different particular elements. And I'll see if they fit, if they dovetail with the storyline that I've got. As things gradually sort of accrete and, and it starts to kind of gain a mass of its own, I'll, I'll timeline things and, I'll, and I will set up sort of a beat by beat schedule. It's like, well, when do these things happen? If this is where the opening sequence is and this is where the ending is and there's the bit in the middle, it's like, I can see the whole sort of structure of the story. And then that enables me to, to see the points where, oh, have I missed something out? Have I, have I not given a character enough of an arc is there is there do i need to put a car chase or a dance number in the middle of the story to sort of make pep it up and make things move along so having to having that structure having that sort of visual structure on on my computer screen helps a lot i think for at that early stage developing the storyline now you're going to read us a little bit from the book i believe from the very beginning yes indeed this is just this is just from the prologue how would it feel if the air itself picked you up by the scruff of your neck and shook you bloody like a dog with its teeth in the throat of a rat. Sergeant Colin Brady wasn't usually a man given to introspection, to think with that kind of depth. His line of work didn't offer much leeway for that sort of thing. Most days, Colin was nothing but business, busy being boss of his small piece of British turf in a foreign land. In this case, the security checkpoint on the road to an RAF base on the coast of Cyprus. But the chaos unfolding around him had knocked something loose in his normally well-disciplined head, made his mind go wandering as his pulse thudded widely and shock sound rang in his ears. He had been gathered up by an invisible giant and thrown aside as easily as he tossed the end of a spent cigarette into a bin. He had no memory of the transition, just the bone-shaking impact of nothing, and then... then he was lying flat on the ground, his bare hands and his face pressed into a layer of grit and brick fragments with pain coursing up and down his body. He had no idea how he got there, a good six metres away from where he had been standing. Well, if that doesn't make you want to read on, I, I don't know what does. Did, presumably this is going to be made into a film. We, we are having that conversation, I'm pleased to say. Things are still sort of in the early days, so I can't really say much more about it than that. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I come from a sort of script writing background. When I, when I first started writing professionally, writing fiction professionally, I started off pitching for television and, and so I had that kind of visual set mindset and I think that definitely sort of comes through in my work. So I, I don't write my novels in the hope that they'll be made into a movie, but I'd be quite happy if they were. <laughs> but, but I do like to appeal to that sort of like that visual impulse. Is it hard though? Because you've got such a reputation for great books. Is, is, I mean, obviously that's a blessing, but is it, is it also a curse when it comes to 
publication day of a new book and the pressure. Well, that's very nice of you to say that, first of all. Thank you very much. I appreciate the comment. Yeah, I mean, every book feels like the first book in, in good and bad ways. I mean, one of the greatest things about being a writer, one of the things that still uplifts me years later is walking into a bookstore and seeing something with my name written on the spine and thinking that small impulse of kind of, I made that, I, I created this and I get to put this story out into the world and people I'll never know will, will read it and hopefully be, be transported away to a sort of an exciting adventure for a little while. That, that never goes away. But of course, abs- absolutely every time there is, there is the pressure because you're only as good as your last book. So I want to, to maintain that sort of forward-moving imperative. And I, and I hope I'm improving with every, with every piece of work that I do. I, I always say that writing is a muscle, that the more you use it, the stronger it gets. And if you, if you don't use it, it atrophies. So I always feel like every book I'm writing, the next book I'm thinking, well, what did I learn in the last book that I can fold into this next thing? How can I incrementally improve? How can I level up as a writer every time I'm writing a book? So that's, that's always in the back of my mind. But I don't, I don't worry about how things will be received. I'm, I'm too busy concentrating on actually getting the work done. And then when the book's out there, it's like kind of too late to worry about whether people will like it. That, all of that stuff's in the lap of the gods. So James, I'm interested with the sort of books that you read and the films that you watch. Are they very similar to the books that you write yourself? Or what, to relax, do you tend to go for a very different genre? So my, 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 yeah, I would say probably what I, 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 I write what I like and I, and so I read and, and, and view what I like as well. So my, my reading tends to be mostly I'll read genre fiction, science fiction, because that's sort of like one of my big loves. Uh, I'll read thrillers and I read a lot of sort of technical books because a lot of my stuff, I write techno thrillers. So I have to kind of be up to date with that sort of thing. So I read a lot of books about technology. I'm interested in in history, particularly military history. I'm a I'm a huge aviation enthusiast, so I'm often reading extremely super detailed books about how many rivets are on the wing of a Spitfire, that kind of thing. The sort of thing that only a very small group of people will find exciting, but it's uh, totally inside my kind of wheelhouse. And then in terms of uh, sort of like movies and television, I like action-packed stories. I like a good comedy. Um, but then sometimes I like a change of pace and I'll, I'll watch something kind of soft and quiet and gentle, sort of like just to sort of put my head in a different kind of space. But generally, I'm, I'm reading in the genres that I work in because I think it's important for me to be informed about what other mm-hmm. people are doing, just to make sure on a basic level that I'm not doing the same thing that someone else is doing. But also because I think it inspires me and it encourages me to sort of raise my game if I read a particularly good book. Just recently, I finished reading White Fire, which is a great thriller by my colleague Adam Hamdy. That's part of his Scott Pierce series, the third book in the series. And I absolutely just inhaled that novel in like a day. And immediately I messaged him and said, are you going to do, when's the next one coming out? Because this is great. And I came to the end of that and I thought, I feel, like, I feel energized about writing my own stuff now because it excites me and to see such great storytelling going on in, in that genre. And it's like, I want to continue to be a part of that and continue to contribute to it. I like that because some authors say, oh, I can't read any book while I'm writing. I don't want it to affect my writing. But I just think if you love books and you love words, you want to be able to read and not not have to put a book away when you're writing. Yeah, I I do try to steer away from something that's exactly the same as what I'm writing if I'm writing something. So if I was writing a science fiction novel, 
I wouldn't. I'd be reading thrillers. If I was really writing a thriller, I'd be reading science fiction. So I don't want to do re rereading stuff that's exactly the same, but it's still kind of there in my sort of sphere of 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 of, of viewership, I guess you'd say. And given the details in the book and and the research that you've mentioned that you do as well do you have a pilot's license can you fly oh i wish i like I, I have done a few i've had a few lessons flying helicopters and 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 small sort of single engine aircraft so i've i've sat in the cockpit i've flown a plane a couple of times so i i can say that i've had that experience but no i wish i would love that i would love to be able to 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 have a pilot's license what I do is I talk to people who are full-time pilots. So I've talked to commercial pilots, I've talked to military pilots, and I maintain an address book of people who are experts in their field. So when I'm trying to write technical stuff, obviously I, I, I err on the side of drama, hand on heart. And so sometimes there are parts that are maybe not quite as technically accurate as they should be. But I, I, I think the drama is the most important thing. But if I can be technically correct, I try my best to be. And so I, I make sure I talk to these people and say, could you do this or could you do that? Would this thing work this way? Just to get that sort of feel to it. Because the, the way I think of it is, is I kind of make a deal with the audience. Is I say, like, if you suspend your disbelief with the sort of the high-octane, action-packed stuff, I'll make sure that everything else in the story is accurate as I can possibly make it. And hopefully that'll be enough to sort of carry the readers through. So what do you like to hear from readers? What sort of response makes you feel, yes, I've, I've done what I wanted to? I always like it when a reader says, oh, I read this cover to cover, or I, I stayed up all night to read this. Hmm. Because I, I, I love being able to just capture somebody with a cool idea and compel them to keep reading. That comes, for, again, from, from my training as a, as a, as a scriptwriter. One of the things I learned very early on is writing for television writing for TV shows with ad breaks. It's like every, every time you have an act break, people are going to change the channel. If your story's not interesting, they'll turn, they'll turn over and start watching something else. And I, I try to do that in my writing so that every time I end a chapter, I want to end it in a way that makes you want to be compelled to keep reading. So I, I like to hear, if, if I do that, I feel like I'm doing my job right. So in terms of writing the book, which is the hardest word to write, the first one or the last one? That's a good question. For me, probably neither of those, because I always find I get, I always have the ending and the beginning are always something I, I kind of have bolted down at the, at the beginning of the, of the project. I always have a good idea for a strong opening and a strong ending. For me, it's the middle is the hard part, is to make sure that that's the point where you can lose momentum, where it can become a bit mushy and the, and the story can get bogged down. For me, that's the part where I, I have to work hard to keep that, that energy going. Well, I'm glad you did because, crikey, there's lots of energy in it. And yet it's not a book where you finish and think, I couldn't cope with the pace of it. It's not like that. It just keeps you reading. Well, there is that. The, I always equate it to, you know, the roller coaster is that mm. you've got roller coasters have peaks and troughs. And so the, the, you want to have that moment where you reach the top of the the thing before it goes down, you have that sort of, your stomach tightens and then down you go into the action moment. And then you have that moment where it rolls out and you, you have to have a moment to, you have to let your readers breathe as much as you let your characters breathe, give them a moment of introspection. You can't, it can't just be relentless action on top of action on top of action, because by you read that sort of story, you come out of it, you feel like you've been in a sort of fight with Mike Tyson, just 
story's beaten you up because you haven't had a, a moment to, to sort of breathe. So yeah, I always try and factor those sort of elements in. Well, we come to the final question, James, which is the crucial one on this podcast. So please prepare yourself. And it is what biscuit powered the writing of Dark Horizon? What is your biscuit of choice? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I always, I like a good bourbon biscuit. It's nice. Mm. But just recently, my wife has been experimenting with cooking her own and she's making, she makes these terrific chocolate chip cookies, great big chunky chocolate chip cookies they're so good and i think and i can't i i I restrict myself to eating just like one a day with with my sort of lunchtime (laughs) coffee so i'd have to say my wife's chocolate chip cookies are the the best ones and you get them warm when she's just cooked oh yeah yeah and they're just a little bit squishy i I, I don't want to talk about it now because it's making me hungry i want one right now well i'm packing up i'm on my way to your house (laughs) because i want one of those whiskers it's just wonderful to talk to you and hear more about Dark Horizon. James Swallow, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Coming up, one more author interview and more book reviews. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So now we go on to Don't Look Away by Rachel Abbott. Let me read you the blurb of this book. It's the silence that wakes me. I know without a doubt that I'm not alone, yet instinct tells me not to move a muscle. Who are you? 
Why are you here? Nancy's sister disappeared from this house 11 years ago. She never wanted to come back. Now, she'll never leave. My goodness, and Rachel's written so many great books, but let's go and talk to Rachel about this particular book now. It is my huge pleasure to welcome to the podcast today, Rachel Abbott, whose latest fantastic book is called Don't Look Away. Rachel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's really good to talk to you. Can we start with a really basic question? Can you give us a bit of a summary of this book? Yeah, so Don't Look Away is the is the third book in the Stephanie King series based in Cornwall. It's a story about a young woman who's plagued by with guilt because one by one she's lost all of her family and she can't stop asking herself, was this my fault? At the beginning of the story, the, the character Nancy, she's returning to Cornwall to a cottage that she's just inherited from a great aunt. And the last time she was there, the, it was after the death of her mother and then her life turned completely on its head. For one thing, she fell in love and she got her heart broken. And then her sister ran away. So she's not really got any desire to return to the scene, but she's got to decide what to do with the cottage. And the minute she walks through the door, the memories start flooding back of her sister Lola and then how she was arguing with her dad and the man she met on the beach and how exciting that was at the time, although it ended in a bit of a disaster. She hasn't been in Cornwall long before she realises that there's someone who doesn't really want her there. She's sure she's being followed and she thinks someone's been in the cottage while she was out. And then she makes a discovery that turns everything on its head and she calls for Stephanie King to help her to unravel the past. It seems that every thought she had about Laura and why she ran away was wrong and Nancy makes it her mission to find out what really happened. But in doing so, she uncovers far more than she imagined and ends up putting her life at risk. Gosh, yes. What a book. I mean, it's an obvious question to ask, but what gave you the idea for this? What goes through your head, Rachel, when you're coming up with the ideas? <laughs> it was different ideas, really. To be honest with you, the book was originally going to be called Can You See Me? And the inspiration for that, the publishers didn't want to call it Can You See Me? But the inspiration came from the sign on the back of a toilet door at Heathrow Airport. Now, how bizarre is that? It was actually about people who were, in this particular case, it was about people who are trafficked and how people who are trafficked are working all over the place and nobody really notices them. But I thought to myself, that extends beyond just trafficked people. It also applies to people who are living difficult, painful lives and nobody really sees what's going on under the surface. So I wanted to create the story of somebody who appeared on the surface of things to be, for everything to be normal, but underneath all this other stuff was going on that nobody was aware of. Do you often get your ideas from toilet doors? No. <laughs> the, the first Stephanie King book, I got the inspiration for the first <laughs> Stephanie King book from a women's prison. The inspiration comes from all kinds of different places. But in that case, it was talking to some of the women who were incarcerated there and realising that of all the people I was talking to about a book that was unfortunately called Kill Me Again. But anyway, most of the women I was talking to were actually in there for murder. <laughs> but the governor did approve the fact that I was talking about a book called Kill Me Again. But that's where the um, inspiration came from for the first Stephanie King book. I'm relieved to hear that because I had a vision of people saying to you, you know, oh, I'm afraid you'll have to use the public toilets and you saying brilliant and getting your notebook out and going in, <laughs> making notes. 
That's not the case though, Rachel. No. <laughs> <laughs> How do you know when an idea is big enough to make it a book? They usually start with really small nuggets of an idea. So most of the time for me, I don't know that this applies to everybody, but most of the time it starts with the smallest thing. And the women's prison one is probably the easiest one to explain because that was um, really based on the fact that I'm aware that there is a way in which if you've committed murder, obviously self-defense is one of the, the main things you can get off with. But also increasingly, there's the, not increasingly, but there is the option of getting off for loss of control. And loss of control doesn't mean necessarily that you fought back on the day. It means that you've actually, there's an accumulation of events that has caused you to lose control at a specific moment. And so that, in that case, the inspiration for me came from the fact that all these events can all pile up and can then cause you to lose control in the future. So basically, the idea was just loss of control. And with this book, it was just basically people hidden from view, people, just the concept of people not being able to express what's really happening to them for fear of the repercussions. So they start off with really small ideas and then they build up from there. So your book's about people and their circumstances, but are the locations important as well or are they just part of the background? Most of my books, historically my books have been written in uh, based around Manchester because that's where I was born and brought up. But she could probably tell from my accent. Um, so that's where I'm originally from, and and I do know Manchester quite well. But um, when I came up with the first book in the Stephanie King series, it had to be by the sea. The whole concept in my head, I had the vision of the place, and it was by the sea. I live by the sea now. I live on the island of Alderney, and our house is surrounded on three sides by a sea. I really wanted to write this book, and obviously there's not a lot of sea in Manchester. There's a limit to how many books you can write in on based on Alderney because there's only 2,000 people live here. I can't keep knocking people off all the time. <laughs> so I, I thought Cornwall. Cornwall's so beautiful. and, and But the, the location always plays a really, really significant part to me because it creates the atmosphere. And the atmosphere in Cornwall is so different to the atmosphere in Manchester. So it's, it's really interesting. I love doing both. But living in the small community that you do live in now, does that give you any sort of interesting ideas in terms of people and how sometimes when it's a smaller community that gives a different sort of pressure on how people get on? Yeah, it's very interesting, really, because people are people wherever you are. But I think that one of the fascinating things about Alderney is that the people who live here, the people who are my friends here, come from so many different walks of life. And I think that when I was living in the UK, the people who were neighbours and friends were mainly people who had similar lives to me. You know, they would be people who worked in, at the time I was working in a corporate world. And, you know, so the people surrounding me were very much the same. Whereas here, everybody I meet has got such a different background. And they've come here for lots and lots of different reasons. But, you know, we can, a group of us can be sitting together and one of them, maybe one of them is a forensic linguist, for example. And another one has a degree in psychology. And, you know, so people, 
have got all these different backgrounds that they bring together. And, and that's what makes it a fascinating place to live. But looking at people and, and thinking about how people work and what goes on in their heads and, and stuff like that is pretty consistent wherever you are, to be honest. That's true. Now, I believe you're going to read us a little bit from the book, the prologue. Yes, I will read you the prologue. I'm not sure that I'm the best person ever to read <laughs> to read out loud. I will certainly do my best. Oh, you'll be great. This is the prologue to Don't Look Away. Slowly, gently, he eases down the handle and slips silently through the door. She's there on the bed, covers thrown back. He stifles a gasp as his eyes travel the length of her body from her long naked legs exposed to the cool breeze drifting gently through the open window, to her chest rising and falling with each soft breath. In the still of the hot night, the only sound is the murmur of waves lapping the pebbled beach. Her breathing changes. He stands perfectly still. Is she awake? He waits, but she doesn't stir. Inching his way further into the room, he creeps to the side of the bed, longing to reach out and stroke her silky flesh. He stands motionless, watching, but not touching. Dun, dun, dun. Very, very good. Thank you for that. <laughs> Can I ask, because you've written a lot of really great books, Rachel, is the process the same every time? Have you just got it down to a T now as to how you approach writing a book? I'd love to say that was true, but unfortunately it's not. So I think that there are certain processes that I follow always. I always do very detailed character analysis really at the outset why are these people behaving the way they are behaving and I also um, find photographs of people who look like the person that's in my head and if I don't do that then I, I don't think the people will be consistent but I, I try to even find people who've got the right expression on their face so for this one for don't look away Nancy has got red hair and I wanted it to be a really vibrant red. And even though I could have found a person with the right face, but with black hair, it would never have felt quite right. And she also needed to have this troubled expression. So I can spend a long time actually searching for somebody who looks like the Nancy that's in my head. And then I have that picture and I have pictures of all the main characters so that they become, they feel like real people. I know their backgrounds. I know everything that they've en they enjoy doing. I know what they like to drink, obviously quite important. <laughs> so I kind of try and build up these character profiles, but I also need to understand what are their internal concerns? What is it that, that drives them? Because that, to me, that's the way to make the characters consistent. I start off with a nugget of an idea. And once I've got that nugget of idea, I build that then into the main characters. And then I do the character profiles. And I do all of that before I start any planning or plotting. Historically, I used to do a lot of in-depth plotting. I used to be a systems analyst, so I'm used to doing flowcharts and stuff like that. But increasingly, I've found that when I do that, I go off-piste anyway. I sort of, I start off with one idea in my head and then I think, no, no, that would never happen. Because as you get to know your characters, as your characters become more real, you begin, I begin to know what they might do next. And it's not always what I thought they might do when I started writing. And are you one of the authors that when you finish writing, the characters still stay with you because they're so embedded in you? Yes. Or when you finish writing, does, do they disappear? 
no, no, they stay with me. And some of them more than others, some of them stay with me for a very long time. And I think it's it's a really strange thing. I, I sent off the next book in the Stephanie King series. I sent that to my editor yesterday. And I got up this morning and said to my husband, what am I going to do now? You know, it's really kind of feel lost. I don't feel ready to start the next one because this one is still in my head and my editor is bound to come back with lots of suggestions for changes and ways in which it can be improved. I mean, they're really great at doing that. And so I will have to rewrite sections probably. So I don't want to lose those characters from my head, but I'm a bit lost. I'd like to, you know, I could sit and tweak for ages, tweak the words, tweak the um, internal emotions, and I could just do that forever. But I have to stop. (laughs) So which is the harder to write, the first word or the last word? The last word for me, because I had to think about that for a minute, but I think it's, it's the very end, because that's when I think it's about the characters. An example is there... The fourth book that I wrote, Stranger Child, so that's many years ago now, all the way through, I knew what was going to happen in the last chapter. I spoke to my editor before I wrote it. We agreed what was going to happen. I sat down and wrote it, and I wrote something could not be more different. And I just I just wrote to my editor and said, there is no way that I could write the the ending that we'd agreed because my character would never, ever have done what we said. It had to be different. So that was really hard because it was so different from what I'd imagined. And I do think the ending is quite difficult. I I don't like writing major kind of wrap-up scenes where everything is suddenly explained in one chapter. So it's unraveling towards the end and then still finding a way of ending with something exciting or interesting. And when you're unwinding, are you reading or watching things of a similar genre to what you write, or do you look for something quite different? I suppose I read a quite varied types and quite varied types of books. I do love reading psychological thrillers; are my, you know, very favourite thing. But sometimes I want a bit of light relief, so I'll read something that's just a bit more jolly. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> dies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and also, I'm, I'm a trustee of the Alderney Literary Trust, and we have a number of events each year. So last weekend, we had something that we call Literally Gothic. So four writers came over to talk about their gothic novels. So I, I sometimes read those. And then in, in March, we have a historic fest, a three-day historical festival. So we got the historical fiction and facts. And we, had a, and we did have a crime festival in June. So we had Kate Rhodes, Ellie Griffiths and Jane Casey. You know, I'd read those books anyway. (laughs) I would always read their book. But the other books, the historical ones and the gothic ones, I probably wouldn't normally read. So it's great to to extend the reading beyond the obvious, really. Mm, Fantastic. We come to the final question, Rachel, which is the most crucial one on this podcast. So please prepare yourself. What biscuit powered the writing of Don't Look Away? What was your biscuit of choice? My biscuit of choice traditionally has been chocolate digestive biscuits, but I've been trained to be a bit more sensible. So I've just gone for ordinary digestive biscuits without the chocolate. Has that affected your writing at all? I don't know, but when I'd written my very first book and I was marketing it, I practically lived on chocolate digestive biscuits. 
because I sat at my computer for hour after hour after hour. So I try not to eat the chocolate ones now. Very good. It's just wonderful to talk to you and hear more about Don't Look Away. Rachel Abbott, thank you so much. Thank you. Right now onto the book reviews. And the the first book I want to tell you about is Someday Maybe by Onye Nwabanelli. And I'm a member of the Afra Book Club, where you get sent one book each month. And the last time, it was an interesting book, but it was a paperback. And I was just thinking, I don't think I really want to keep paying all this money. I didn't think I was getting value for money last month. And then, to be honest, I forgot to cancel it. And then this book arrived and I sat down and thought, well, I'll just read the first few sentences. And my dear listeners, I couldn't stop reading this brilliant book. Uh, let me let me read you the blurb and, and we'll take it from there. Here are three things you should know about my husband. One, he was the great love of my life, despite his penchant for going incommunicado. Number two, he was, as far as I and everyone else could tell, perfectly happy. Number three, on New Year's Eve, he killed himself. And here is one thing you should know about me. Number one, I found him. Bonus fact, no, I am not okay. Okay, so let me read you the first few sentences of the prologue because this is what drew me in. Around the time my husband was dying, I was chipping ice from the freezer in search of the ice cube tray wedged in the back, but only because I was taking a break from filling his voicemail with recriminations about his failure to communicate his whereabouts the memory of this, along with countless other things, would weave together the tapestry of blame I laid upon myself in the days and weeks after his death. Well, when you read a beginning of a book like that, you can't help but just be drawn into it. And I was, I literally just sat there and and just, I was reading another book at the time and I just left it. I just had to find out more about it. And Books about death and obviously there are, well, do I dig, do I give a spoiler? Let me see in the other blurb. Does it say what happens? Uh, no. Okay. It's, it's an unexpected death. So prepare yourself if you're affected by those sort of storylines, just tread carefully. But still, it is a brilliant book because I think it deals with grief in a way I haven't seen covered in other books. It wasn't dealt with as a means of making the story move on. It was the story and how different people react in different ways. And there's a there's a mother in the book who just particularly stands out in terms of the way grief affects people. It's funny. It's moving. It's a wonderful book. I really enjoyed it and would thoroughly recommend that one. Let me get my, all my books in a lovely pile. There we go. Now, the next one is The Night House by Joe Nesbo. Um, a friend, Mark, had I'd seen that he'd read the book and recommended it. And I thought, well, this sounds intriguing, actually. And he'd said about how the first chapter was something one wouldn't forget. And let me read you the blurb of this one. Um, I, I'm laughing. <laughs> it's a horror book and it's about some horrible subjects, but I think the best way is to laugh about it. Anyway, here we go. In the wake of his parents' tragic deaths, 14-year-old Richard Elevard has been sent to live with his aunt and uncle in the remote town of Ballantyne. Richard quickly earns a reputation as an outcast. And when a classmate named Tom goes missing, everyone suspects the new angry boy is responsible. 
No one believes him when he says the telephone booth, out by the edge of the woods, sucked Tom into the receiver like something out of a horror movie. No one, that is, except Karen, a beguiling fellow outsider who encourages Richard to pursue clues the police refuse to investigate. He traces the number from the phone booth to an abandoned house in the woods. There he catches a glimpse of a terrifying face in the window. And then the voices start. When another classmate disappears, Richard must find a way to prove his innocence as he grapples with the dark magic that is possessing Ballantyne. It's a, it's a book and a half, I, I, I tell you that. Um, OK, chapter one, first few sentences. You, you crazy, Tom said, and I could tell he was scared, seeing as he stammered one more time than he usually does. I was still holding the Luke Skywalker figure above my head, ready to throw it upstream against the current. A scream echoed from within the dense forest that surrounded the river on both sides, as if in warning. Yes, it is a horror book, but I enjoyed it. It's weirder than weird. And when you think you know where you are, you're not. And it's twists and turns galore. But yes, it's a horror book, but I don't know. I wasn't scared, which is maybe I was, but I don't know. It's a good book. I really enjoyed it. I'm glad I read it. I'd recommend. I mean, if you're into your Mills and Boone or you're just gentle, uh, you want to read about uh, 17th century romance and sheep shearing, then possibly The Night House isn't for you. But yeah, enjoyed. The next one is another manga. Get me. I'm just a manga girl now, aren't I? Now, you know I love the spy family. And so I thought, well, if I love the spy family so much, let's read something else by that author. Because I went into the bookshop, into the manga section. I was the oldest there by about 40 years. So that was great. That was a great feeling with people looking at me. Why are you here? Anyway, I didn't know where to start. And often uh, with a series, I think, oh, that sounds interesting. They don't have book one in the series. Why don't bookshops have book one in a series? Surely you need book one to get people in. Anyway, there we are. So I just thought, well, let's go for the author of The Spy Family and see what else they do. And I came across this book, Goodbye, Eri, by, of course, Tatsuki Fujimoto. And it's it, this is a book that is, I'd say, adult. It's about death. It's about lots of different things about death and it's very full-on emotional but it's also a lovely book. Let me read you the the blurb on this one. Yuta's movie making career started with a request from his mother to record her final moments. After her death Yuta meets a mysterious girl named Eri who takes his life in new directions. The two begin creating a movie together but Eri is harbouring an explosive secret. Yeah, as I say, it's not one for the kiddiewinks because of the content, but it was a lovely book. I I enjoyed it. Is that the wrong word to use when you're reading a book about death and all sorts of things? But I enjoyed the experience of reading it and it's one that I won't forget. And yeah, I'm going to keep on with my manga because that's, that's how I am now. I'm down with the cool kids. Anyway, there we go. Those are your books, five very different books, but all of them really enjoyed. So we've had Dark Horizon by James Swallow, Don't Look Away by Rachel Abbott, Someday Maybe by Oni Nwabanelli, The Night House by No, No, by No Jesper. Oh gosh, you're right. I've not had any breakfast yet and I need to. The Night House by Joe Nesbo and Goodbye Eri by Tatsuki Fujimoto. 
Those are your books. I'm going to send you on your way. Let's all start a petition for reading week so we can just sit. Imagine, imagine having a week where we just have to read. Oh, sounds wonderful. Anyway, just look after yourselves and I'll talk to you very soon. Take care now. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Quick Book Reviews podcast. That's enough books, said no one, ever. See you again soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.